Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Spend my dollar. It's not about what you want. It's about what you're willing to do to get it. Run it again. Hello and welcome. I'm not going to, so quit asking. When you give me a hard time. For the listeners that didn't get to go. This is the payback. What you did last year really doesn't matter. Our goal is to have the kind of team that nobody wants to play. Hi. Hello and welcome to a Black Ops edition of the Alabama Football Podcast. Over the last week or so, Saban has really called out uh, or spoke to special teams, I think kickers in particular, as assassins. Now, I tend to prefer sniper, but I think the analogy holds, right? These are skill players that they don't get do-overs. They don't get two or three or four or more downs to make their point. They don't get a full drive to make their point. They're baseball players that go up with one swing. It's the kick, right? Today, we're going to do sort of the same thing. We're going to take very targeted shots, good and bad, and then we're going to move on. I've got three categories or topics that really defy our normal categorization. Offense, defense, special teams, what's up next? We've got a number of topics that will hit under those categories, but we've got three that sort of defy that level of branding. So we'll tap them out up front. First is officiating. We can't have a podcast on this game in which we don't talk about officiating. However, I'm going to talk about officiating very differently than what you may think and what you're going to see in a lot of places. I'm going to tell you, Alabama fans, don't you dare play the victim card here. Maybe there were a couple of calls that could have won the game for Alabama. There was not a single call that cost Alabama to lose the game. The losing of the game, Alabama did two and four itself. Yes, at times it felt like the officials were taking turns, but Alabama's offense alone nearly won the game. So we get the other parts of the, the team participating. This is an Alabama win. Remember, Andy Dufresne had to go through some really tough times, and he prevailed. Alabama had to go through some tough times, and they didn't. And it's not because of the officials. It's because of other factors. It's because of self-imposed limitations. Second, again, this one defies our traditional categories. Second, CBS got a drone. Yippee. Now, this target is personal, right? Drones are cool so long as you're not spying on your neighbor's daughter. You know who you are. The Cubs did a drone video recently that went through all the stadium and Wrigleyville, and that was pretty damn cool. It makes me want to go and experience that. But for TV drones, for college football games, I think we need some rules. Maybe we do one dramatic shot of the stadium before the game where the drone and the camera is rising up and it lifts above the sort of the lip of the stadium and you get to see the, the insides. That can be a pretty cool shot once every couple of weeks, right? So maybe we do one of those as we're kicking off 
the coverage, right? Maybe we do that again from a different vantage point in the fourth quarter if it's a close game. And we'll see sort of the, the time elapse. It'll be afternoon versus uh, early morning or, or morning, or it'll be night versus afternoon. And so this sort of recasting or resetting the scene, uh, I think there's value in that. If it's a particularly scenic view, Pasadena, right, the Rose Bowl, then you get one, maybe two at different points throughout the day. But a dirty river bend in Appalachia, sorry, it doesn't count. Now, this one's personal. Just like I said, why does this matter? Why are we going on here? Because the field level cameras, and when I say field level, I'm, in, I'm including the sky cam that sort of sits just above uh, the field of play. Those cameras and the live feed of those cameras do work that the announcers can't or won't do. And namely, that's the personnel that's on the field. I am always looking at every camera angle that you can get for a TV game. If you're there, it's different. But for every TV game, I'm trying to look at every camera angle that they'll show. And I'm not necessarily looking at what they're showing me, but what's in the background? What players are on there? What numbers do you see? What personnel groupings do you see? You can see if someone has rotated in, not because they show that person, but because you see that person in the background. And so the more field level cameras you get, you get to see that type of play. The announcers aren't going to tell you. And so those cameras help you see that. Uh, here's a pretty good example, right? The starting center, Alabama starting center, Seth McLaughlin, went out. He was replaced by Darian Dalcourt. I think very, very late in the game, perhaps before the final Alabama's final drive. Well, to me, that's newsworthy. Uh, but the announcers made no, no reference to it, and, um, and it was just – spotting 71 in the background that uh, sort of sort of tipped that off. And uh, again, that's an important thing you would want to spot uh, in calling the game. I will give the announcers a little bit of credit. When Tennessee had a lineman uh, who got rolled up on in, during one of their first touchdowns, and it was the sky cam that caught it. It was the field level camera, if you will, that uh, caught it. Uh, number 54 went out. I made a note. Is he going to be back in on the next drive? It looks like he may be out. And with that next drive, the uh, sideline reporter was able to speak to that. Now, I think that's good reporting. That's them doing their job. Uh, but they also caught it because the field lever cam camera caught it. Their over-air view in the truck, if you will, everyone saw it, immediately begged the question. Sideline, sideline reporter was able to do their job. When the drone is hovering around and showing all these snazzy shots, you miss all the all of that. So that's my second shot there. Third, uh, I'm targeting a historic mindset. I used to have this mindset, and this is a mindset that I've taken target at before more than once. And uh, it kind of goes like this, right? Mike DeBose was wrong about a lot of things when he was the head coach at Alabama. But by golly, he was right about the concept, the axiom that five plays can change the outcome uh, of a game. I laughed at that when he said it. Are you kidding? In a game that might have 70 plays, you're saying five, but he's right. Five plays, sometimes less, can change the outcome of a specific game. And I think that that shoe fits this Alabama-Tennessee game so well. Uh, now, we're talking, no, we're not talking about blowouts. If you beat a team by 60 points, there's more than five plays involved. But a close game, a lot of times there's less than five. And even if especially if you take out the officiating and you distill down to the play on the field, not the, not the stripes impact. 
there were at least five plays and some singular plays, but five plays that um, led to sort of self-imposed injuries on the Alabama side. I think it cost Alabama the win. And so this is not about officials. This is about Alabama executing. I want to be very clear on that. I'm willing to have a drink and let's talk about officiating because they had a bad day. But in terms of rolling up the sleeves, putting on the big boy pants, being a fan of your team for their performance, this is not about the officials. And we're not going to make it about the officials on this podcast. All right, there you go. Offense, keep your head down. You're up. So, look, here's what Alabama's offense produced on Saturday. 569 yards, 455 yards passing, 114 yards rushing. Okay, I'll give you that's a little low. 49 points, 37 minutes time of possession, zero turnovers. This is after a four-turnover week last week. And eight, a total of eight scoring drive. Folks, those are not good offensive stats. Those are outstanding offensive stats. Those stats are blowout stats. Alabama blows out teams, and their offensive stats are not this impressive. So the offense, big picture here, did everything that was needed for Alabama to win the game. Now, we'll poke at a couple individual things, but hats off absolutely to the Alabama offense. And so what most clearly made the Alabama offense go this week? Well, of course, it's none other than Bryce Young. Bryce Young definitely lived up to Heisman billing uh, with his performance Saturday, perhaps even in the fullness of context, perhaps even his best performance wearing crimson or a white uni, but uh, white road uni, but uh, you know what we're talking about. He definitely proved that he was healthy after there being two weeks of breathless uh, reporting. And he also demonstrated that he is tough as nails. Bryce took quite a number of hits. We're not going to dig into those, but quite a number of hits. There were some question marks uh, tied to some of those. But every time he got hit, he shook his head, he got back up, and he continued to play and played outstanding. Bryce Young had, as quarterback, and the only quarterback who played, uh, 455 passing yards, two touchdowns, which is interesting that there were only uh, two off of those passing totals. But uh, that just means he was effective and efficient, moving the ball up and down the field all day long. 455 yards passing, two touchdowns, 52 pass attempts with a 67% completion. But let's go back, 52 pass attempts. Here's uh, a player that was on a pitch count during the week. Here's a player that didn't play last week. So for the past two weeks, he's been in a recovery mode. We've talked about, the coaches have talked about his injury being one that just requires rest. And the fewer reps he gets, the more rest he gets. And so we've got him on a pitch count. Uh, Like Saban said, he practiced enough so he doesn't forget how to play football. But we're not going to wear him out in practice. But by golly, we put the game on his shoulders with no fear. 52 pass attempts uh, on Saturday. And that's with all the rough treatment uh, he received uh, from the volunteers. Bryce Young completed passes to nine different receivers. So we're talking about a point guard distributing the ball. That's how Bryce uh, plays. A couple plays that I would call out, and there's one that I especially love, where Bryce and I would we can get mad at pass interference, but there was a uh, there there was a series uh, in which Bryce effectively manufactured uh, a pass interference call uh, on Tennessee. It was a it was a pass to the back of the end zone. It was on a third and goal from the Tennessee 16, and he was scrambling out, spun around, scrambled out, uh, heaved the ball downfield. Uh, was able to draw a pass interference 
And, and I, he could tell me that he intended to draw the pass interference, that that's the shot, you know, you know, when you play pool, you know, call the bank. If he were to come back and say, and, and say that that was his call to play to put it up and go for a pass interference, I would believe him. That put the, that PI uh, gave Alabama a first down and what other look like, otherwise look like it's sort of a meltdown situation gave Alabama a first down on the two uh, where Alabama promptly scored to take their first lead for the day. So this was a material possession and Bryce just manufactured just an incredible play. The drive itself was 12 plays, 75 yards. Uh, There were two Alabama penalties and there were five times where Alabama lined up on that drive with uh, in a third down situation. And uh, Bryce overcame that a tremendous play on a third down to draw uh, to draw pass interference. There were times again we talk about Bryce being uh, tough as nails. Uh, a couple times he ran. I swear we need a sliding coach on the Crimson Tide coaching staff. Uh, he got he got tagged once as he was uh, attempting to slide. Uh, I think he, if if he had been more crisp in his execution of the slide, I think it would have been even more egregious than, than it may have appeal, appeared. But it did look more, more like he was tripping over his own legs and he was sliding. And so uh, take that with a grain of salt. And there were a number of plays, and I call this sort of the phone booth uh, play, where you're spinning out, you're moving, you're spinning out, not to run, but just one of those, and, and always reference to it because the play that he made at Vanderbilt. So that's sort of the, the category of play. But when you're spinning out, with the intent of defender, if you will just get out of my way, I know where to put the ball. And so I just need you to stand over here while I position the ball where it needs. And so he is moving to reposition those DLs. He spun around uh, one time, sort of ducked, uh, and then uh, was playing dodgeball out there. Uh, but he put the ball up and, you know, created a, a play downfield. Again, Bryce was tremendous. I know Alabama lost the game, but if we could give Bryce a W somehow, and gosh, I think there's Tennessee fans that would agree with that. Uh, if you could give uh, Bryce a W, I think he certainly deserved it, uh, deserved it with his play uh, Saturday. Uh, Jameer Gibbs uh, clearly was Alabama's second best player on the field. He had 24 carries for 103 yards, three touchdowns. So that's catching up some of the touchdowns where Bryce only had two. Uh, he had three on 103 yards rushing. He had five catches for 48 yards. We're talking about uh, Jameer Gibbs. He had one play where I wish he had caught the ball, uh, sort of rattled around in and out of his hands. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about that play here in just a minute. I want to talk, talk about the receiving core just as a whole. Uh, I think the wide receiver talent really showed out on Saturday. Again, you have 455 yards passing. Somebody has to catch him. Kobe Prentice, a uh, true freshman, had nine uh, Ja'Cory Brooks, a guy that we've talked about, sophomore, that we think he's emerging as a go-to target. He had six. Uh, JoJo Earl only had one, but by golly, how was he so wide open? And um, and he was limited in his play, but he caught uh, uh, one really nice uh, big grab. Did, you, did uh, JoJo uh, Isaiah Bond had a couple of really nice passes. He only had two catches, but uh, they were both really fine grabs. Uh, Treshawn Holden had one. Uh, unfortunately, he only had one. It was a real nice third down conversion, uh, but he had another catch uh, or drop early in the day that earlier in the day that I know that he really wishes he could have had back. Uh, I believe that was on the third where Alabama had to punt. Uh, it would have led to a first down and uh, I think even a bigger game, potentially even a score, uh, but certainly a bigger game. That may be one of the 
uh, five plays you wish you could have back is Treshawn Holden. And again, I'm not piling on the individual. I'm just calling out action on the field. And uh, Treshawn missed a big one. He knew it. He went to the sideline and he was he was quite uh, quite dejected. And uh, team sort of picked him up. But uh, you know, Treshawn's a guy that we need sort of. I'm going to say get his head in the game not be maybe so sensitive to the bad play because he's so capable of making the big play. And uh, Treshawn is, I think, going to grow and mature into quite a player for Alabama. Cam Latou uh, had what I am what I would start to term as a Cam Latou day, and I mean that in the best ways. Uh, he had six catches, 90 yards, and a touchdown. So a Cam Latou day can be quite productive. It's not as outstanding. He's not going to have 300 yards and three touchdowns, uh, but six catches, 90 yards, moving the chains, uh, a touchdown. That's a good day for Cam. Uh, and he's able to make uh, challenging, difficult catches. And uh, a couple of these, those six uh, certainly were. He's good at blocking. It's not his forte. And uh, he had a couple of good blocks and a couple less than good blocks. And I think all of that sort of encapsulates uh, a Cam Latou day. But I give him a thumbs up. Uh, we've been needing more days from him like this. And again, if this is just a maturation of the Alabama passing attack, then that's where we want to go. This is a train we want uh, to ride. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Let's talk about offensive line real quickly. I thought they had a good day, not a great day. There were times where Bryce had a lot of uh, of time, and and there were times that he didn't. Or there was times when the the pocket would start to collapse, and I credit some of that to the coverage down the field. But I thought as a whole the offensive line did uh, did well. Uh, there was a point in the game where Seth McLaughlin was replaced. I'm glad to see him. Uh, it, it appears to be entrenched as the starter, uh, which is really good. Of course, he gets hurt and uh, or appears to be hurt. Uh, there was sort of a chat room comment from someone that was at the game that that mentioned that Seth went into the tent. I've seen zero medical or, or media report of that. So we'll see how that plays out. I imagine first part of this week, we'll learn more uh, probably Monday and Saban's presser. We'll hear a little bit uh, more of that. Uh, Seth did have a bad snap on the day, but I thought Bryce recovered from that 
uh, very, very well. That could have been uh, significantly more dangerous, and, and Bryce handled that perfectly. If there is a flaw in Seth's game, I think he could be a little uh, more accurate with his uh, with his snaps, but he does so many other things well, and and the occurrence of a bad snap like this is, is reasonably rare, but it's an opportunity to clean up there. Uh, let's see. I'm going to hit one more base. Uh, we did see Tyler Booker, and he did the rotation that we've been talking about. So uh, first two snaps, uh, uh, first two drives, he's out. The third drive, he comes in on the right on the left side, and then he two drives on the right side, and then two drives out, and then sort of rotates back in. So we did see him uh, throughout the game in uh, in that capacity. This is a game where you know we didn't get 14, 21, 21 point, you know, 28 points up against an inferior opponent. And so the more, you know, the true freshman line, lineman rotates in, the less sort of a big deal it is. This was a back and forth game all the way to the very, very end. And uh, in fact, Alabama was significantly behind uh, for good portions of the game. And we stuck to that rotation. Uh, we didn't shrink the bench. We didn't, you know, flinch. We didn't uh, pucker up. Uh, we maintained our plan. And so that really speaks to the confidence that uh, coaching staff has in Tyler Booker. So that's uh, that's worth uh, observing and noting as well. I thought the offense, save for just a couple of things, and when you have so many positives, you know, you're going to have – it's an oblong, you know, ball, right? It's going to bounce funny sometimes. And so for all the positives that the offense had, uh, there were a couple of things that, that we could knit, and I do think they're knits. I thought the offense played so well that I will even defend the play calling – at the end of the game, uh, just before the the missed field goal, and I know that's going to be a point of emphasis. We should have run uh, to to advance the ball instead of you know incomplete passes, and then we're kicking a fifty yarder. I agree to a point, but it's not as egregious, I don't think, as as it may you know as it may seem when you only just pick out you know some of the finer points. Let's look at the whole sort of context. And then you tell me what you think, right? It was an 11 play. So we're talking that last drive that led to the missed field goal. Obviously, if you make the field goal, no one's, you know, we're, we're playing outcomes here, right? Uh, we're playing results. We're not playing process. If we think about the process, I, I'm comfortable with how it happened and how it played out. It was an 11 play drive uh, that gathered 43 yards. It burned three minutes, 11 seconds out of a possible three minutes, 26 seconds. It left 15 seconds uh, on the clock. It was nearly, in fact, perfect execution uh, from that from that standpoint, trying to burn as many minutes off while managing your downs and trying to achieve a makeable kick. 51 yards, 50 yards is a makeable kick. You'd always, you'd always rather it be 35 or 30 or 25 or 40. I understand all of that, but in terms of managing the clock and doing what needed to be done to move the ball, it was almost surgical in its execution. Uh, this 11-play drive uh, consisted of nine passes, one run that went for no gain. Uh, there was a penalty, uh, so technically the teams lined up 12, to- uh, 12 times, but 11 plays, and then there was the kick. So uh, nine passes, one run, and a kick accounted for the 11 plays, again, earning 43 yards and burning nearly, nearly, <laughs> damn it, not all, but nearly all of the available seconds. Jameer Gibbs on second down had a pass that just rattled right through his hands. Now, 
Jameer Gibbs is one of my favorite players on this year's squad. And next to Bryce, he, clearly the second best player uh, on the team. He brings a level of dynamic play to the offense. That, and we've talked about this since spring. He's the most dynamic game-breaking running back we've had since Kenyon Drake uh, on the field. So it's been quite a while. But we live in a world where more than one thing can be true at once. Because he is so talented and we appreciate him so much, the pass that bounced in and out of his hands is that much more painful for us to experience and watch. If he had caught that because he is such a dynamic player, he, he easily, it's a seven-yard gain where he catches the ball, uh, and he clearly has the speed and moves to advance the ball, the ball further. There was an angle that looked like he could potentially, it's a crossing route, right? He could potentially take it all the way. He certainly gains, if only the seven, it's a 43-yard kick. If he gets a first down, it's a 40-yard kick. And and if it's a 20-yard gain, a 25-yard gain, obviously we know math and we know how it works. It becomes a shorter kick with every next yard that he gains. And he was just so close uh, to breaking it. On that drive, I was convinced we were, we were going for a touchdown. We wanted to set up for a field goal as a backup, but the objective there was let's try to score a touchdown. We know who we're playing. We know how, the, how explosive they have been today. And I think the passing game plays into that hands. Now, I do think that was on second down, so there's a third and fourth, and there was 11 plays run, so that would have been the ninth play of the drive. Nine plays into the drive, if he gets the first down there, um, do we then maybe run the ball? Are we comfortable, hey, we're going to kick this from 40, uh, from 38 instead of 50, maybe against 12? Do we start to run down the clock and then and then do this final kick with two seconds left? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. And so we should have run the ball. We should have burned more of the clock. Well, <laughs> there's not much more clock to burn. And if the the most dependable offensive player on the team, not named Bryce Young, catches the ball, then we do exactly what everyone is suggesting. We run the ball a couple times, and we let the clock get down to two, to one, whatever it is, and we kick at that point. It's an easier kick. Alabama likely wins the game. So, again, when we're counting those Mike DeBose five plays, you know, make the kick from whatever distance. Uh, let's add that to the list. But I think Jameer Gibbs and his catch or non-catch, I think you have to put that on the list as well. Again, we're not mad at any individual. We're not calling anyone out any more than everyone saw the game and, uh, and, and, and what happened. We're not drawing conclusions necessarily uh, larger than that. I do think this is a, a situation where, and I do this myself uh, at times, try not to. Coach talks about it. Uh, don't play the result, play the process. I think the process, uh, when you really break it down, the entirety of that play, I think the process was really good. Uh, it was really tight. And uh, had there been one more play there, then I think uh, I think it unfolds as everyone would want or expect it to. Uh, I think you also want to be careful where you don't option the coach. We've all had people do this to us. Whatever you say, there's no right answer. And that's the idea of the option. And so we're going to read off of someone. And if they make a move, then we're going to make them wrong. We're going to, if they come in, we're going to throw over their head. If they step back, we're going to run uh, into the hole that they create. It's kind of a similar sort of thought process here. If we pass and it works, then we've played into what we've been doing. We've been successful all day passing the ball. Why would you not pass? Why would you not the football axiom dance with who brung you, right? Why would you not do that? 
And then in that situation, if you pass and it doesn't work and you say, well, we should have run because, you know, this is a running situation. And so let's not option the play calling. Let's not option our team. Let's not make our team wrong. Uh, let's understand the full context and understand we don't like the result, but maybe there's room to appreciate how and why things unfolded. All right, enough of that. Let's move forward. Let's uh, let's see. I'm going to give a mini game ball on offense. It's going to be a small mini game ball. I'm giving it to Darian Dalcourt. He missed two weeks with injury, and then ironically, looks like Seth maybe goes down for reasons we don't yet know. And Dalcourt came in uh, at least on that last drive. That's the first sighting I had of him. And uh, you wouldn't have known that the center changed. And to me, that's a pretty uh, big, uh, uh, big position change across the front. You wouldn't have known that the center changed. Looks like Dalcourt played really, really well on that last drive. I want to go back to film and see exactly when he came in. But uh, nonetheless, it was late. It was urgent. It was critical. And he played up to that. So Darian Dalcourt, mini game ball. All right, let's flip the film and talk defense. And uh, defense, I'm just going to, you know, sticking with our sniper theme. Defense, line up. I promise I'll make this quick. Uh, defense uh, allowed actually only 22 minutes of time of possession. It was at the defense of the Tennessee offense. We could argue that. Uh, defense forced two turnovers and actually almost two more. Defense only allowed five of ten third down conversions. And if you look at the stat line just right there and you couple that with the offensive stat line, you're going to say, this is a blowout. Why are we even talking about this game? And um, you continue on down the stats and you see that the defense also allowed 567 yards. So Alabama gained 569, allowed 567. So there you go. There's your three-point margin. It's got to be close, right? Um, Allowed 385 yards passing and 182 yards rushing. I think that's the high-water mark that this team has allowed rushing on the season. I think the prior was Arkansas went in the 160s. I don't know. I have to go back and look at the stats. Uh, but uh, by far, this is the, the largest. Uh, I think it's a couple times above above average for the season. Uh, 52 points allowed is the most an Alabama team has allowed since 1907. So on a night where streaks are broken, uh, 16 years, it's been 16 years since Tennessee has beaten Alabama, and it's been 115 years uh, historically bad uh, since Alabama has allowed 52 points. I even find that one hard to believe because I've sat through some embarrassing losses. But uh, there you have it. Uh, defense only recorded one sack, and it seemed like almost an accidental sack where DJ Dale got the sack. I love DJ Dale, but he is an avoidable target where we have rushers that are not avoidable targets. At least that's how I'll say it. Alabama had zero quarterback hurries, which uh, in my notes I wrote down seemingly impossible. Yep, I do strongly feel that way uh, about it. When we think about the defense and we and, and we just sort of overview it at the per unit level, uh, the cornerbacks were nearly silent on the day. And that's good when your cornerbacks are silent. That means the receivers they're covering are not having big plays. In fact, Kool-Aid McKinstry played the, the whole game. His name was never called until the very, very end. Uh, we all know that play. But in terms of his duties as a cover man, his name was, I don't think, called at all. And in fact, Kool-Aid registered zero stats on the day. So if you didn't know that he played, you might not know that he played. 
Uh, Terrian Arnold had a couple of tackles, was in on a couple of tackles. I think he may have gotten uh, a penalty earlier in the game, but generally he was quiet. Uh, so uh, when your corners are quiet, that's a good thing. That means they are taking people out of the game. However, when your defensive linemen and linebackers are quiet or mostly quiet, that's a bad thing. We need to hear their names a lot, racking up tackles, making big plays, pressuring the quarterback, batting balls, all of these types of things. And Alabama's defensive linemen and linebackers were mostly quiet uh, on the day. Other than just the hyperbole that Will Anderson gets, I don't know that I heard Will Anderson's name called in the flow of the game. Dallas Turner had his name called when uh, there was a mesh fumble for Tennessee, and he was able to scoop it up and score a touchdown. That was a phenomenal play, and it was a play that was, you think of Alabama winning big games on big plays, uh, that felt that flavor. It had that sense to it. It had that flavor to it. Uh, but alas, it was not enough to go on uh, for the win. Uh, so cornerbacks quiet, good. Defensive linemen, which is a lesson here, right? Uh, defensive linemen, linebackers quiet, bad. Uh, when three of your four leading tacklers are safeties, bad. That's bad. That's exactly what Alabama had. And uh, I want to talk about DeMarco Hellams, and I want to speak to, to him uh, specifically. And I want to say, and we have given high praise on DeMarco this season. And I do not back away from that. In fact, I double down uh, on it. We've talked about DeMarco Hellams being a player that is almost a textbook case for coming back and playing on this team. That He's elevated his draft status uh, playing on this on this team. And for those reasons, and I still believe they're true, and, and the spirit of them absolutely is true, I believe what the coaching staff did with DeMarco Hellams on Saturday is borderline criminal. They may literally have taken money out of his pocket with how they utilized him on Saturday. You know, DeMarco did have 10 tackles on the day. He had an interception. Uh, but the Tide coaching staff continued to put him in positions where it was DeMarco Helms, who we know is a box forward safety. We've always said that about DeMarco Helms. He's a box forward safety. So to put him deep in a two safety look, uh, deep, uh, over-the-top coverage on the slot receiver who they were putting, Tennessee was putting their fastest receiver uh, in that spot, spot is, is borderline criminal. It, it, it reminded me of, if you go back when Alabama played Ohio State and there was a play, it was Alabama's last, last touchdown uh, before half, when Devonta Smith was just Smitty, our Smitty, was just having a, just a beautiful day. And he got a long touchdown because he was matched up against Tough Borland. And and Tough Borland, I don't know, had 38 tackles that day or something, uh, a very active sort of box forward player. But on one-on-one one, one -on -one coverage with an All-America level receiver, it's just a mismatch. And he was so blatantly beat that it was almost criminal what the coaching staff put him into. Like someone should have stood up at a meeting and said, we can't have that as a coverage option. And, and they did. And we talked about it. And, and we joked that the whole time that Tuff was running as the, you know, I've got to continue to put effort here. He was cussing his defensive coordinator. Well, DeMarco Hellams is very, very similar. Uh, was put into a position where he was uh, not allowed to succeed because his skill set doesn't equal the task that he's been plugged into. Sometimes you'll do that situationally because, you know, a defensive lineman will fall back into coverage because, 
we're trying to do something creative or clever. That's okay on a one-off. It's not okay when it is the defensive scheme. DeMarco Hellams was beat deep, and I hesitate to even say it in those words because it sounds like it's his fault. The free safety, who's a box forward, box safety, uh, safety, got beat three times on a play. If you wind them back, they look almost exactly the same play. And guess what? But they kind of they are because the fastest receiver's in the slot. And he's running down the middle and he's splitting the corner in the in the safety and the safety over the top and he outruns them and boom, touchdown. And um, I don't know schematically, I'm not a defensive coordinator, what Alabama could have done differently, but I started to very actively think, and think back a couple of weeks ago, Saban was talking about we were down uh, our star, and so we moved McKinstry over to the star, and we had uh, Helms in battle every play, tell him what to do, and we had practiced him there before, but it had been several weeks ago, uh, maybe in camp, and McKinstry's a super instinctive player. He knows the playbook. He understands, you know, everyone's position. So it wasn't a hardship necessarily. It's just something that we did in the flow of the game. I thought, why the hell? Why the hell can't we move him over to free safety in that position and let him do that deep cover? Bring in Kyrie Jackson as, as the cornerback. Now, Kyrie at, at corner is not as good as McKinstry. Of course, we know that. That's one's a starter, one's not. But we know the box forward safety can't play this position, what we're asking him to do in this game. And, and, and Kyrie, we know, can play corner. And so maybe, let's give it a try. Maybe we get burned on that. Maybe we shut that down. But we should have tried something. Maybe it's bringing in our Devonta Smith from this season, uh, who's a freshman, sophomore uh, safety, who's a little smaller than, than Helms and uh, a little more fleet of foot, maybe we put him back there. Maybe there's another safety that we can put, uh, put back there. I know we went from nickel to dime, and so that made a subtle change, but it didn't fix it. And so, again, schematics, I, I can't quite tell you how we fix it, although I've got some ideas, and um, we'll see how we might uh, be faced with that in the future because don't believe the other teams aren't watching film on that. Don't uh, believe for a minute that other teams won't take that shot. All right, so what are we going to do? We're going to wrap up defense with mini game ball on defense, and we're going to give it to uh, uh, Deontay Lawson. Uh, I think he made his first start last week against AM. and uh, He started again Saturday against Tennessee. We thought in preseason that Lawson was, was really coming on and that he might be sort of a platoon player with Jalen Moody. Now, Moody sat out last week with a kidney bruise, uh, reports are that he was back at practice, uh, so presumably he could have played. And so to me, against uh, playing a team like Tennessee, who's going to sling the ball over the yard, this feel, last week it felt like injury replacement. This week felt much more like a platoon. Uh, you play the player who can handle left-handed pitchers better uh, or passing uh, passing attack better. And so that's going to be Deontay Lawson versus, uh, versus Moody. Although situationally, uh, Tennessee did have some sex, uh, success running, and so you wonder, you know, Moody situationally uh, may have been uh, uh, successful. But I've given it to Deontay Lawson. There was a point, I don't know if folks noticed, there was a point where Henry Tuatua was out, uh, looked like uh, part of a series, and he was getting some stem work uh, on what looked like cramps. And uh, and then they cut to the field, and Alabama's playing, uh, Alabama's playing a dime with one linebacker. Uh, 
Uh, so a lot of times Alabama will take a defensive lineman out, uh, leave the two middle linebackers in, and that's how they'll go to dime. But they took uh, with Totoa, they did not replace him per se. Uh, they just went to a dime and they kept the kept the down lineman, played with one linebacker, and it was uh, Deontay Lawson. So hats off uh, our mini game ball to Deontay Lawson. So that was certainly nice to see. All right, let's move along to special teams. Uh, Will Riker, you know, this is a couple couple of key points I think we'll talk about here, right? Uh, Will Reichert was two of three on field goals. Last week he was one of, one of three of field goals, and it was enough. Uh, Saturday, two of three of field goals was not good enough. Um, I don't want to put it all on his shoulders, and uh, but he knows that he's missed three kicks in the last two weeks. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know what has happened to our Will Reichert. Uh, I say that with all, all the, the necessary joking and, uh, and legit concern. Uh, it was only just a couple of years ago that he did not miss a kick, which is unfathomable. And um, it looks like we're, you know, water's finding this level. Uh, we need to get that sorted. It was a 50-yard kick. I never hold a 50-yard miss against a kicker. 35, we'll have that conversation. Uh, 42, maybe we have that conversation. And, uh, again, we'll go back to Jamar Gibbs. If he catches that, then uh, at minimum or at maximum, it's a 43-yard kick. Uh, I think that's eminently more makeable. Reichert has the leg, and so you, we can talk distance, but he has the leg. Uh, that ball did go more than 50. Uh, it was just off the mark. And so same kick would have missed from 40. Same kick would have missed from 25. It didn't slice out. It just didn't hook in. And there's not a distance uh, from which that kick would have been made. So I guess bear that in mind. Some work to do there. Uh, James Burnup uh, had three punts for a net of 115, an average of 38. He had a long of 48. He did have one from the back of the end zone. Uh, Alabama was on its own two-yard line, and so that kick was only a 33-yarder. It's hard to – you would love to boom a 58-yard punt in that situation. Uh, It's not practical. And so the fact that uh, it was a 33-yard punt – in a compressed field, higher pressure situation, it, it's hard to pin that one on uh, the punter. I think that's more of the uh, the offense. Uh, I, I put that one. I pin that one more on uh, the offense there. And there were certainly penalties that backed Alabama up. So legit penalties, not officiating deficiencies, uh, but legit penalties. There were legit penalties where Alabama players did things they should not have done. It was clear they were wrong and um, backed the tide up quite a number of times. Add those to the list of things that are fixable, not conspiracy theory related. No tinfoil hats here, people. Um, uh, you know, Kool-Aid McKinstry, again, was bottled up, so he had nearly a quiet day. Um, and I guess that wise, he really did have a quiet day. Kool-Aid McKinstry was bottled up. He had no punt returns, but uh, apparently we had a new punt returner uh, out on the field. And uh, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, uh, tongue but uh, Quadarius Robinson, uh, officially is credited with a three-yard punt return, and uh, of course he fumbled, led to a turnover, gave Alabama or gave Tennessee a uh, short field. They scored three plays later. The one time, the one time on the day that Alabama held Tennessee to a punt, uh, we muffed it, and they got a short field, and um, and promptly scored a touchdown. It was, uh, I would say, at a critical point in the ball game. Uh, the score was ten to twenty-one at the time of the punt. We had just uh, 
forced again Tennessee's first punt. And so it looks like, hey, let's move the ball down here. Uh, if we can put points on the board, uh, we really narrow this thing up. Uh, when you're behind, you need to take possessions. You need to break serve. You need to score when they don't. And uh, and so forcing a punt was an opportunity to do that. Uh, alas, the turnover allowed Tennessee to score again, and it became 10 to 28, 18 point margin. It was the largest deficit uh, for the Tide on the day. Uh, Alabama really started to turn things around from that point. Uh, but had we done the same turnaround without giving away that touchdown, you know, potentially Alabama wins. So again, not putting the the loss on Robinson. We're just calling out the single individual, very distilled plays that could have with changing only a couple of them, and they're all self-imposed, not external factors, uh, that could have led to uh, an additional uh, or, or different outcome. I'll say this, uh, Quandarius, uh, on the field, uh, it looks like he legit thought uh, Alabama had touched the ball, in which case it would have been Tennessee's. And so his reaction was, I need to go possess that ball. Uh, I'm not mad at that instinct. His execution, I'm probably more disappointed with his execution. Don't try to pick it up. Fall on it. Wrap it up. Possess the ball. Don't do anything else. And so uh, the fact that he even went to pick it up and try to run with it, that's how he got the three-yard return, and that's when it was knocked out. Whereas if he had just curled up around it, then it would have been, what are you doing? But, okay, good job, uh, versus uh, is saving so emphatically on national TV um, – was, you know, what are you doing? What the F are you doing? Um, so there you have it on special teams. All right, next up. We're going to break next up into two parts. We're going to do long-term next up, and then we're going to focus forward the rest of the season, uh, in particular next week. Uh, so next up for this Alabama team, you know, a game like this, there are dozens of moments uh, you go back and you think, well, what about this play and what about this series? And if we'd done this one thing here and and this penalty or this bad play or whatever it is, it's, it's there's dozens, maybe two dozens of individual moments that we could sort of talk through that we would individually, you know, fret over uh, all of those. And on one hand, that makes a loss like this more painful because there's so many what ifs. What if this one thing had been different? What if this other one thing had been different? If all of these one things had been different, then it's, you know, it's an, it's an entirely different, different uh, ballgame. And so it's more painful. It's also easier to fix because it's one thing. All right. Let's go fix this one thing and this one thing and this one thing. And if we all do our share and fix just our own sort of responsibility, then the whole team gets significantly better. And so that's encouraging, frustrating, also encouraging. You can also look at it from the lens and say, this is week, what, seven? Why do we still have so many one things to clean up? And that can sort of spiral into uh, or cycle into a different level of frustration. Why do we have so many one things at this stage of the season? That can, you know, like I say, get into a cycle that says we have to make changes. We cannot persist with this. And I think that's where I'm getting to. I'm getting to that point. Uh, I've been slower to get there, but I'm approaching it, and uh, I think many other fans are as well. So I'm going to just sort of inject a little feature today where we're going to talk about the cycle that begs changing. What do we think those changes may be? So uh, a little bit sort of prediction focused uh, so that I can wave my hand and say, 
you already hear first. If some of these start to play out or as they start to play out and uh, maybe to engage some dialogue. Uh, also, uh, join our Zoom calls, drop me emails, and uh, these will be fun topics that uh, we can engage around. I think the cycle of change that we're going to see from, we're not going to see it mid-season. We're going to see it after the season. We're going to see it after the bowl season. It's not going to happen immediately. Uh, so there's some legs on this, plenty of time for conversation. I think both coordinators are replaced, and I think they're positioned to shared decisions, and that's okay. That's that's fine. I think Bill O'Brien probably gets a head coaching opportunity somewhere in college. There's a lot of uh, open positions, and he has had uh, success in college. Uh, what he did with with uh, Penn State, uh, I think, is still really impressive. Uh, I think college administrators are still really uh, impressed with that, and Bill O'Brien has had certainly some success uh, at Alabama. We have frustrating moments with him, uh, but I think he could certainly point to success, and I think Saban would clearly endorse him. So there's potential opportunities, uh, head coach opportunities, uh, at the collegiate level for Bill O'Brien if he wanted to go that route. I am purely convinced uh, that there are significant opportunities in the NFL if that's where he wanted to go. My prediction is that he ends up as uh, offensive coordinator for New England Patriots with maybe some sort of vision that he becomes their next head coach. So that's my prediction. Uh, I think that's a shared decision. It's, you know, two years in college, it's time to move on. Uh, I've gone back to college. I've decided, hey, I don't really want to do this again. And so I'm going to go seek opportunities in the NFL. Or, hey, I've test-driven college a couple more years. This is really what I want to do. Uh, I want to, I've had enough success in my career. Uh, I have enough on my resume that I can steer my own program. And so I think two years uh, is what O'Brien is doing to sort of test drive what he thinks he wants to do with the rest of his career. He will have made that decision, and he'll move on. And so I think at best we were only going to get him for two years anyways, and uh, and there will be people that will be glad to see him go, and that's okay. So I think that's going to be a shared decision. Pete Golden, uh, I think the Pete Golden experiment has sort of run its course, and I have been a big fan of Pete Golden, and so I've come. it's taken me longer to get uh, to this point. Saturday did it for me. Uh, I think that uh, the Golden Experiment has, has sort of run its course. He's had some success, not nearly as much as we would want or hope or expect with the players that uh, we think the level of talent we think is, is on the roster. Uh, I think this will try, uh, there will be an attempt to position this as a shared decision as well. Uh, if Pete moves on and is a head coach somewhere, which I think is not too far outside the realm of reason, uh, I think that's uh, that's great. If he moves on as a defensive coordinator somewhere, then you know maybe that's him acknowledging it's uh, it's time to move on as well. So that'll be interesting to see. I think both DCs uh, are replaced at the end of the season. I think uh, if we talk about who who how do we replace them? Uh, we'll start with the defensive coordinator. I think it's the easiest. I'm going to predict a strong run at Jeremy Pruitt just because he knows the system and we had uh, Alabama had tremendous success with Jeremy running the system. Uh, Jeremy's career needs a stop in the saving car wash. And so uh, it's been a couple of years. Uh, there's still some of the Tennessee funk on him, but he's gone to the NFL. And uh, I think uh, Jeremy could come in and just quietly take over his old desk and uh, help turn around the defense. Uh, if that doesn't work, then I think a promotion may be in the offing uh, for Traverius Robinson He's a uh, the cornerback coach. He's done really, really well. Saban's uh, defensive coordinators that have coached in the secondary have had the most success as DCs, and so I think there's some connective tissue there. Uh, Traverius is a tremendous recruiter. 
There's uh, He also played at Auburn, and they're likely to have a coaching staff turnover. And so he may have his choice of defensive coordinators. Uh, if we bring in Pruitt as our D.C., then there's a great chance that Traverius becomes D.C. at Auburn. There may be an opportunity where Traverius gets to go home and talk to his wife about two defensive coordinator op- uh, uh, opportunities, one at Alabama and one at Auburn. So that might be interesting. If we do promote Traverius, I think it's partly because of his skill and capability, and it's partly so he doesn't leave, uh, especially with recruiting. And so that, in my mind, sort of sniffs of uh, the Mike Loxley situation where we promoted him and retained him as offensive coordinator, even for just a little bit. Uh, But Alabama had great success with that decision. The offensive coordinator, I think, is, uh, in my mind, is not as clear, although there's three candidates that uh, I would bubble up at the top. They're all three currently offensive coordinators, but I think moving to Alabama would be uh, a good stamp on their resume uh, and, and you know, likely something of a promotion uh, for a couple of them. Jeff Levy, former offensive coordinator under Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, current offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. I think before he went to Oklahoma would have been the right time uh, to bring in Levy. Uh, he was the offensive coordinator under Lane Kiffin. Even the media didn't know that he was the offensive coordinator. Uh, clearly at Oklahoma, under a defensive head coach, uh, Levy is more clearly the offensive coordinator. But, boy, things stink in Norman, uh, even with Saturday's win. So might he want out of that situation rather than be tied to a head coach that might be on a um, uh, on a limited string? Uh, might Jeff Levy be interested in the Alabama job? Uh, I think uh, he would take our call. Charlie Weiss Jr., and I'm not trying to play an outcome here, but uh, he is the current uh, Ole Miss offensive coordinator, and Ole Miss is uh, really having tremendous success this year. I think someone will make a run uh, to bring him in. Uh, Charlie Weiss Jr. has spent time at Alabama as an analyst and coming back to Alabama under Saban as the offensive coordinator. Might be a really good opportunity for him. He would certainly certainly know what he's getting into. And then he would be able to put sort of – he wouldn't be Lane Kiffin's offensive coordinator, uh, where, again, you sort of get forgotten. You would be Alabama's offensive coordinator, which I think uh, sort of the press on that uh, would be a little, a little bit different. I think the resume build on that would be a little bit different. And for similar reasons, I point to uh, – and this is a longtime sort of favorite of mine. I've, I've projected that, that he's going to spend time – in and out of the Alabama program, but A.J. Milway, who is the current offensive coordinator at Texas, and he is largely credited with the recruitment of Arch Manning. Again, he's Sark's offensive coordinator, and so I'm sure media members don't even know he exists, whereas if he were Alabama's offensive coordinator under defensive head coach, uh, but running the saving program, which he knows because he's done at least two tours of, tours of duty uh, at Alabama, uh, I think he would view that or treat that as a home as well as a promotion opportunity. So interesting. Those will be uh, interesting things to see. Again, sort of long-term uh, thought worms to uh, plug in your ears, uh, things to think about. Uh, let's look more short-term at Mississippi State coming up next week. And then the team has a bye. So Alabama needs to uh, – the team needs to sort of buckle down, uh, clean up from Saturday and not be in the bye mindset. Let's not take this game for granted. We don't want one to cost us two. Absolutely and without question, uh, Alabama needs to make adjustments in the single uh, in the secondary. Uh, absolutely critical. Uh, we're playing a Mike Leach team with a quarterback that is playing at a very high level. Uh, Will Rogers is pulling the trigger with scripted efficiency. He is, uh, 
I think the team as well as well, uh, but the team has improved significantly over the last two matchups, uh, Alabama, Mississippi State. I think we've blown them out the last couple of games. Uh, I think this is a better, uh, in fact, I'm certain this is a better Mississippi State team. Uh, watching a little bit of them last night, I know they dropped the game to Kentucky, uh, but they play with a tight end. They didn't have one on the roster last year when we played. Looked like they were using, uh, utilizing uh, the tight end as well as the running backs, and those have been afterthoughts. And so as they become sort of multiple in that way, I think they become a little more dangerous. They also know um, sort of the, the textbook is out there, how to beat the Alabama secondary. And so um, don't think that they won't be uh, studying up on that. Uh, no predictions today. I'm just hoping it's not a track meet. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the Alabama defense sort of finds its normal. And um, whoever was wearing the uniforms last Saturday, uh, that they give them back to the back to the team because uh, we'd like them we'd like to use them this Saturday all right with that this has been whew, another edition of the Alabama football podcast roll tide thanks for listening to the Alabama football podcast we love that you're tuned in and hope that you enjoyed the show we encourage you to reach out and let us know what you like where we can improve or just to shout out a roll tide we are where you are iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, email newsletters, t-shirts, free roster downloads, and of course, on the web at alabamafootballpodcast.com. Check us out where you'll find easy links to your favorite way to follow the tie. Got that, Coach? Of course. Roll Tide. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer.